April 20th, 2023. This is Rook. Well, hi there. Welcome to episode 257 of Rook. Hey world, don't forget the political prisoners of Iran. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Hello to you from Toronto. Salam dostan aziz. Hey world, don't forget the political prisoners of Iran. You see, as some protests have died down and executions are less in your face, you may be mistakenly thinking that peace or improvement has taken place. Somewhere in the regime propaganda about prisoners being pardoned, you may not have guessed that the mullah's resolve has actually hardened. Hey world, don't forget the political prisoners of Iran. Oh, we know about some of those who've been tragically locked up and thrown into solitary. We worry about the conditions of Tumaj and Nagis Mohammadi. But let's not forget that this is a daily occurrence. The arresting and jailing and torturing and terrifying of Iranians who've only committed the apparent sin of expressing their opinion or dissent with this regime continues to grow. This is ground zero of the authoritarian hook. This is the top of the list for the totalitarian playbook. Quash anyone who disagrees. Put them in jail and keep them on their knees. The more the eyes of the world turn away, the more latitude there is for atrocities by the Islamic Republic every day. Hey world, don't forget the political prisoners of Iran. Just today, another prominent journalist, this time Kayvon Samimi, was detained for allegedly working with the regime's enemies. He was set to address a conference in Clubhouse called Dialogue to Save Iran. Now authorities have ensured that he's all but gone. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, at least 95 accredited media members have been arrested since the uprising began. Some have been killed. Iran is officially the worst country to be a journalist anywhere across the globe. Now there's a shameful distinction. And there is word today that the Iranian theater actor Hossein Mohammadi has been sentenced to 10 years in prison. What did he do? Corruption on earth through committing crimes against national security. In other words, he dared disagree with the mullahs. He was meant to be executed. The outrageous threats come without fail, and it's a low bar to be celebrating that an innocent man only gets 10 years in jail. Hey world, don't forget the political prisoners of Iran. Wherever we are with the revolution and toppling the theocracy, we cannot ignore these crimes against humanity. The more the eyes of the world turn away, the more latitude there is for atrocities by the Islamic Republic every day. So this is a message to all of us. Over 20,000 Iranian citizens have been unlawfully detained simply for protesting against this murderous regime in Iran. It's not acceptable, it's a horror story. And it's a reminder, we need the Ayatollahs gone. Coming up on this edition of Rook from Tehran to Tesla, Farzad Mesbahi joins us from Austin, Texas on lessons learned at Tesla and his new success as a YouTube tech guru, and Kayvon Zen on the Persian Parade this weekend in New York, plus Pega on the Roundup. This is Rook, episode 257, from Tehran to Tesla. Welcome to you from our studio in Toronto, the Rook Studio. Hope you are doing well wherever you are tuning in from around the world on our ongoing mission 
to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. Hello, Pega. Hello. Smart Pega is here. We're going to do the roundup in a little bit. Uh, and Super P. Parisa Super P. Sanjirani, the pride of Mashhad, <laughs> has walked into the studio as well. Hello to you. Hello. Uh, well, I, th- there's a reason you're here. I'm going <laughs> to gonna complain <laughs> to you in a moment. Farzad Mesbahi joins us in a few moments uh, from Austin, Texas. He's got an amazing story. He grew up an Iranian kid, mm-hmm. grows up in Spain, and then the U.S., wow. always obsessed with Tesla, mm-hmm. the company, Elon, ends up working at Tesla, becoming very successful at tex- mm-hmm. Tesla on a first name with Elon Musk, and then oh. leaves after four years. He's a young guy. He, he gets to a high position making a lot of money, leaves mm-hmm. Tesla to become a YouTuber. Wow. <laughs> and what do you know? He's become a very successful YouTuber. He does tech tips mm-hmm. on YouTube uh, and some car stuff. Interesting. Uh, it's, yeah. I mean, it's it's a story of success so yeah. far. Um, so Farzan Mesbahi will join us. Um, I'm assuming if you're a guy, because he says his audience skews super male. Mm-hmm. If you're a guy who's into tech and cars and maybe Iranian, I don't know. I don't Have know if his know audience him? is Iranian. Then you might know him. Do you know him? I Now I know him. Right. Well, see? <laughs> Super so, I mean, P, it's, it's you knew him because you did right? some research on him for me. Yes. Yeah. Farzad Mesbahi. That's all yes. you have to say. Okay, thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then later in the show, our friend Kayvon Zand, yes. who is the uh, genderqueer personality and mm-hmm. uh, musician in, in New York, he's going to be part of something on, um, on the weekend called the Persian Parade mm-hmm. in New York. We thought we'd do a little promotion for the parade and have uh, speak to Kayvon as well, have him back on the show to talk about his role in that and his role He's been quite outspoken during the uprising mm. and has gained a, a, a big following inside Iran. Oh, wow. Yeah, so Kayvon's coming up. Uh, but first, we'll get to the roundup in just a moment. Um, I, I, Super P, I'm still, as people can tell from my voice, still ailing a bit. And you're still sick, right? I can't shake this thing. Whatever it was, this was some sort of super the virus. Entire, the entire rook office is an infirmary it's mm-hmm. basically like a wing of a hospital and it all started with super p super p super spreader parisa that's right who seems fine she is she's better how are than you all doing of us. I, i'm okay thank you for asking me <laughs> <Yeah>. all right <laughs> uh, Jun, I, I helped you because you wanted to lose weight and I, like that's true. right I now have, look at you it's like, true i have lost some weight because of this um crippling sickness that I didn't get that symptom how come (laughs) no just well yeah maybe it's because I dramatically stopped eating out of frustration Um, although it doesn't matter how much I lose weight I I, my face remains as round as ever and um, I did you did you ever bite your lip yes bite the inside of your lip you feel or like the inside of your cheek how is it that I've lived for a few decades and I I still do that I bit the inside of my so now I'm having trouble speaking I was doing that essay about political prisoners yeah. and I could barely make the words out because of uh, it, everything's a disaster. Everything Hashtag a everything's a disaster. Yes, exactly. That's right. oh. We're coming to you on uh, rookmedia.com. It's there that you can link to all of our platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Instagram, CastBox. If you'd like to see what you're listening to on Rook, you can switch over to YouTube and uh, also Instagram. And I should mention on Monday's show 
Mazior Falahi was mm-hmm. in the studio yes. for a feature interview, his first interview in English, mm-hmm. like major interview. And it was uh, amazing. It was, thank you. I thought it was amazing. great. I mean, I, I heard it, I saw it, it was just phenomenal. He was, he was very emotional too. Yeah. He cried four times in the interview. I mean, what what he was talking about was definitely emotional. It I was. Mean, it was. His story is actually heartbreaking, yeah. but also beautiful in terms of his resilience and his heart. He's mm-hmm. such a sweet guy, it seems. And so that interview is available um, uh, on Instagram and, and YouTube in the video form mm-hmm. and has over 250,000 views yes. in, in three days, which is uh, a significant amount. So if you haven't seen it, head over to YouTube or Instagram and watch... Uh, the interview with Maziar Falahi, the great uh, songwriter, composer, singer, um, and poet from Iran, now living in Germany, small mm-hmm. town in Germany. Um, if you want to support us, you can go to uh, rookmedia.com and become a Rook member through our Patreon page. That's right. And uh, you just press the support us button. You go to our pa- you become a Patreon member at the bronze, silver, or uh, gold level, and you get some special special perks. Perks, That's right. like a newsletter. Newsletter behind the scenes, um, and lots more to come. Actually, mm. as we're as our patrons and Rook members are growing, we're going to be engaging them more and more. So lots to look forward to. You know, I was listening to my Arsenal podcast. Mm-hmm. A couple of days ago, and the guy, the host guy, had a really sore. He was like, "Hey, how you doing? Right then, how you doing?" And whatever his Scottish, I don't know. And and uh, and the reason why his voice wasn't working is because he'd been on a bender, drinking all night. Oh, yeah, not and a super party situation. No, I mean with us, it's never that. No, it's not because we're having a good time. It's because <laughs> there's a virus in the Rook Media sick in bed. studio. Yeah. Um, I actually thought you brought Super P because you were going to ask her about Tesla. Oh yeah, right. Uh, that uh, sorry, I was going to ask about that. We have Mazier, uh, Mazier, Mazier was Monday. Farzad, yes. Farzad Mesbahi coming up. Um, I'm actually I never, you know, um, I Roham, mm-hmm. a savvy Roham on yes. our team drives a Tesla. Yeah. Uh, I never got into the mystique of Tesla. Really? I know it's extremely popular mm-hmm. and uh, there's a great deal of virtue that comes along with uh, <laughs> Tesla and virtue signaling you know, those who ha- own Teslas but I, I you know I, I haven't got caught up in it maybe because I'm such a mini mini mm-hmm. Cooper guy you know um, but have you I mean Pega you drive what is it a Rolls Royce or something <laughs> yeah, right. this Pega I mean, oh my she, goodness every time she turns up with a new car and it's like you've replaced Keon as the new oh God, uh, no. material it's not, it's not that I just wanted to say that she's like she's traveling oh she's, here we go yeah. <laughs> so what you, are you enamored of the Tesla you don't own a Tesla you have no, an Audi no I don't I have right? an Audi yeah but um, I don't know if you remember I actually got my car not too long ago um, and when I was looking for a car it was in the midst of that craziness where apparently we were like short on cars everywhere in the right. world or something like that and I was trying to get a Tesla but the wait was so long and I needed a car immediately so that's why I actually ended up with the car that I have needed now a car immediately well I did because I you sure. know between work and yeah. you know things like that so um but yeah I would I would have liked a Tesla for sure okay I you're, in you're whole, into Tesla yeah I am right. I believe in and Super P would you like to own a Tesla um I, I yeah I <laughs> love that but <laughs> I don't see it in my life in the like I don't know but uh, actually to be honest with you I I w- never I, I wasn't interested in cars and like 
I'm still not interested and I don't have any information about it. Ah, well, that's fair. You're not that, you're not, you should, I think the answer is I'm not enamored of Teslas. That's what you want to say. Yeah. yeah. yeah you have, you don't lie in bed at night dreaming of owning <laughs> no, a Tesla. No, no, no. <laughs> Are the people of Mashhad dreaming of Teslas? Spokesperson for Mashhad. Yeah. <laughs> You're the stand-in for Mashhad. Yeah, it's like <laughs> every time there's something with Mashhad, <laughs> I have to respond. Um, no, I don't think so. We don't have a yeah. <laughs> Tesla Actually, I don't even know. Are Teslas in Iran? You know or what? I, um, I don't think there are any Teslas, but pretty much every other car that you can imagine, they've made their way over, and I wouldn't be surprised if soon enough we started to see Teslas right, in Iran. right. All right. Well, so that's why super, I forgot. Super, that's, that's that, what a great here. answer that was. Uh, I'm not sure. Okay. I never thought of it that much. Uh, <laughs> well, she's not a car fan. That's, you know, that that's makes right. Sense. Not, not into cars, burying her face in her hands. Super, you're the best. Don't, uh, don't take my ribbing the wrong way. Um, okay. So let's do a bit of roundup before we get to Farzad. Mm-hmm. First of all, um, I guess, I don't know why. We talked about this on Monday, but I thought it was pretty big news that Reza Pahlavi and mm-hmm. Yasmin Pahlavi went to Israel. Yeah. Um, partly to, to mark the opening of the, the Holocaust Week or Holocaust Memorial, week, I think, anyway. Yeah. Um, and uh, there they are in Israel. They met with Netanyahu. Mm-hmm. So on Monday, we talked about this being a pretty bold move right. that would excite a lot of people and would certainly not be something that uh, would be welcome news to some others. Mm-hmm. Um, what have you discovered about how the Iranian diaspora or the people inside Iran are reacting to this? You know, I think everything that we talked about on Monday still stands true today. And in fact, I think um, what we kind of hypothesized on Monday has definitely come true. And if you look at, you know, where we go to for public opinion, I guess, which is the Twitterverse, um, you're definitely seeing that divide and you're seeing a lot of people, um, you know, kind of say that they they support this and they support the fact that Reza Pahlavi went to Israel and, you know, how emotional it is to see him there, especially when he went to um, some of the more significant um, areas in Israel. I, I mm-hmm. believe he went to the Wailing Wall. He mm-hmm. went to, um, you know, he went to a ceremony to commemorate the Holocaust. So there's a lot of commentary about that being emotional and I think a lot of Iranian Jews are actually really moved by this Um, but then on the flip side you have a lot of individuals who are saying you know this takes away from the current revolution in Iran because it is such big news and that we should be putting our focus on what's still happening in Iran so there's a lot of commentary like that Um, but it still holds true that you know wait a second I don't I mean, I understand somebody not liking it because they're not a fan of the Mm -hmm. state of Israel or something like that but but or, or at least I, I know that argument, right. uh, whether I understand it or not. But but to say it takes away the, what's the argument? that the, A lot of people on Twitter are saying, or some people, I some shouldn't people, say a lot yeah. of people, but some people on Twitter have been saying... Um, Persian you know, Twitter. Persian Twitter. <laughs> this is where I get most of my news from. Yeah. Um, they're saying that, you know, with someone like Reza Pahlavi, someone who is part of the coalition and someone who has a background and things like that, um, it's big news for him to travel to Israel. And because it's such big news, instead of it amplifying what's currently happening in Iran, it's taking attention away from that and in fact just putting attention on Hmm. his presence in Israel. Okay, well... So that's an argument. Yeah. I mean, but then everything takes... I mean, you couldn't do anything. Uh, You can't play a concert in 
Los Angeles because that would take away from... Uh, yeah, but I think that the idea here is that he's been kind of this spokesperson for the revolution in one way or another, right? Mm-hmm. He's been part of the coalition. Certainly he's one been, of the spokespeople. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so with him being in Israel and focusing on, um, you know, the, the water concerns and visiting different sites and being there for commemorating the, the Holocaust and things like that, that's, I think, what they're referring to as being deterring from the current revolution mm. i don't know if i agree but that's mm-hmm. that's what's being said that's one of the arguments i mean to be honest i'm i'm surprised it hasn't been bigger news mm-hmm. like I, I i don't think i i saw it in some like iran international right. talking about it and stuff i don't think i've seen it in any western news um, i thought i i i would have thought maybe that's isn't that sort of front page news of i guess it isn't I, or well, i guess maybe it's thing. not and, and it doesn't cut the editorial mustard no. for the New York Times or something. I don't know. But I, I kind of would have thought that, that was it was a big deal. Even even if they want to write a negative editorial or something, right. I would I would have thought this would be news. It's kind of See, here's the thing. I'm about to say something and we're gonna I'm sure I'll take some heat for this. Right. But Reza Pahlavi isn't a big deal? A big deal. I mean, yeah. if you're not an Iranian, right? Yes, he's the son of the former Shah of Iran and That's that, a big deal. That's fair, All but right. yeah. His presence in Israel is not really something that's going to be front page news. I mean, right now, what's happening in Israel is probably more front page news true, than, true. What, than a, his visit, right? There's a million people in the streets, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Exactly. Right. So I was just thinking about the American administration, the Biden administration, and thinking maybe they're not fans of Reza Pahlavi, or they think that Reza Pahlavi would be supported by more Republicans mm-hmm. or, or something, because... It's it's also weird for the Biden administration to be quiet about this. But again, if they don't think Reza Pahlavi is a big yeah. deal, I mean, Jasada doesn't. It's not somebody that Joe Biden's thinking about. Right. Well, then fine, you know. But but you know, Israel, major ally, son of the former, you know, friend of the U.S. Mm-hmm. goes to Israel. The American administration has says not a peep about Nothing it. Nothing about it. Yeah. Did I miss something that Robert O'Malley? <laughs> <laughs> whose name is Robert Malley, but yeah. I prefer calling him yes. O'Malley. O'Malley. The, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. So, so there's some. There was a, a split decision mm-hmm, so far sure. in the crowd. Yeah, I definitely saw some. Saw some of both yeah. in terms of uh, the reaction to uh, to to the Shasta's trip to Israel. Um, the other thing that I saw that you and I talked about uh, mm-hmm. bringing to the roundup was this actress Ponta Bahram, yes. um, who made quite a statement this week. I'm mm-hmm. actually not familiar with her. Do you do you know her, Super P? From uh, yeah, yeah, I I know her. She's a famous actor in Iran. Uh, what and is she in on TV or? Um, she played a couple of m- many series and okay. uh, movies. So so tell us what happened mm-hmm. with Ponta Bahram, uh, Pega. Yeah, I think she's incredibly brave. Um, like Parisa mentioned, she's an Iranian actress. She's prominent in theater, um, film, and in TV series. And most recently, she's been part of a TV series called Pusta Shir, which has become really popular from what I understand in Iran. And um, this image of her that's gone... Skin of the Lion. Yeah, oh. skin of the lion. I had to think or about that Or skin of the milk. <laughs> I, don't, I never know when we're saying she or which one. I think it's the skin of the lion. <laughs> yes, I think so too. <laughs> in this case. <laughs> um, so this image of her that's gone viral, it's, it's an image of her in a public place with no hijab. And now I just want to clarify, when I say no hijab, I mean she doesn't even so much as to have a scarf on her shoulders like mm. we've seen you know, over the last six, seven months with a lot of women in Iran. Um, so she showed up to this public screening of the series finale of Pusashir 
with no scarf, no hijab, nothing. Um, photos being taken. And photos are being taken. And now this photo has gone viral, as we've seen. And I just think it's such a show of courage. And it's such a testament to what we've been seeing women in Iran do the last mm-hmm. seven months. Um, so I really wanted to talk about She this. hasn't been detained yet. No, I mean, this only took place two days ago, I believe. So we haven't because heard the, anything. Because the, the regime playbook, as I was inferring in the essay I just mm-hmm. did, is in some cases wait a little bit until there's less news going on and then, I don't know, in the middle of the night or somehow Mm -hmm. come and abduct the person and put them in jail. That's always the worry when we see, you know, brave acts like this. But um, she's been outspoken against the regime for some time. I think even prior to the ongoing revolution, I believe, um, she's always been kind of a voice. So, Um, If enough people do this? I, I guess. Fingers crossed. Um, w- anything else you got for the um, roundup? There was one other thing I wanted to chat about. Um, Ali Reza Ahundi, who is a member of the Swedish parliament, on the 18th, I think so, that was two days ago, um, he initiated legal proceedings against the IRGC and specifically against the head of the IRGC, um, an individual by the name of Hossein Salami, I believe, for mm. crimes against humanity. Now, the reason why this is significant is because under Swedish law, an individual can actually be held criminally responsible even if the acts they committed were not in Sweden itself. So this is why um, I think Al-Yirza Hundi feels that he's in a place where he can kind of initiate this and it would be a really big move if if this individual was then convicted under right. Swedish law. Um, now this happened two days ago. So what happened was as of today um, when they had the additional 125 individuals sign on, they also... I guess added that this is also in support of um, Vahid Behishti's, um, I guess, cause to have the IRGC put on the terrorist list in, in the UK as well. So it's now kind of echoing that as well, but um, a little bit different in this case because they're trying to, um, I guess, convict this individual specifically. All right. Yeah. Every once in a while we talk about some event that's happening somewhere in the world mm-hmm. uh, in the Iranian diaspora um, we've elected to talk about this Sunday there being a Persian parade mm-hmm. in New York City uh, featuring uh, Ni- our, our friends Nicole Ansari is going to be involved in this and Shahram Shahpare mm-hmm. and uh, not necessarily I don't know him but Charlie Zamoradi I know she's going to be there um, but also uh, Kayvon Zan mm-hmm. he's going to be joining us in a little while to talk about his participation and what this Persian parade is all about. If you're in the New York area, head down there on Sunday. I think it starts at 11.30 a.m. Mm-hmm. on Madison Avenue and yeah, 39th, I think. I think. So. Uh, thank you, Pega. Thank you. Thank you, Super P. Parisa. Thank you for having me. Um, all right, let's get to our first guest. My first guest today is an Iranian-American entrepreneur, a YouTube content creator with over 50,000 subscribers on YouTube alone. Farzad Mesbahi was born and raised in Cordoba, Spain. His parents were immigrants from Iran who left the country in the aftermath of the Islamic Revolution. The family moved to the United States in the late 1990s when Farzad was 12 years old, and he's been living there since. He got his degree in mathematics from Penn State University, worked as a program manager at Tesla for four years. Then, in 2021, Farzad made a decision to quit his job at Tesla and become a YouTuber. It was 
as it turns out, a sage choice as he has become something of a social media powerhouse. He's also been creating content related mostly to the future of technology and autos. And right now, Farzad Mesbahi joins me from Austin, Texas today. Hello, sir. Hello, John. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, that was very kind introduction. Uh, yeah, it's I'm I'm living this sort of very strange life of doing what I love to do, and it's like very weird, and I feel very lucky and blessed, and it's like one of those things that I'm just I'm just riding the wave, man. It's like wherever I'm going, wherever the universe is taking me, I'm going with it, and it just so happens that I've been doing this YouTube content thing that I've just very passionate and I really really enjoy, but I just I think getting to know people and getting to talk to people has been really the the most. I think the most rewarding and favorite part of it. So thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to talk well, to that, you. Well, that's exactly where I was going to start. I was going to say when you yeah. were a new immigrant kid of Iranian background landing in the States from Spain about 25 yeah. years ago, would you have ever imagined that you would become a popular media personality? I don't even remember what I imagined, honestly. it's It, it was so long ago. I For me at that, at that time, I was just struggling to learn the language. You know, when, when we moved to to uh, the States from Spain, I, I left, you know, I, I was born in Spain and really my parents did a really good job of sort of, uh, re you know, reminding me of my Iranian roots, my Persian roots, you know, uh, I, I understand Farsi perfectly, but I can't speak it very well. So I'm sure I let them down there a little bit, but it's okay. <laughs> and I imagine you, you can't read or write either, right? No, no, no. It's, but I can understand her perfectly. That, that's yeah. good. Me too. I'm, I'm illiterate, but I can speak it, uh, which I said yeah. that on <laughs> Uh, go ahead. Yeah. You're telling me about Spain. No problem at all. Yeah. And so when I, when I was growing up there, I built sort of a, like a really close uh, knit friends group. And then when I was 12, we moved to the States. So when I moved to the States, really my biggest challenge was just learning English. So learning, uh, another language and trying to get accustomed to the, you know, to, to a new way of life. Um, when my, when my parents left, uh, they left to, you know, in pursuit of a better life and, you know, sort of the American dream, my dad had family here that helped him get sponsored and all that stuff. So that was awesome. And we're always very grateful for, for our family members, but that was really just my, my thing. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, honestly, even during, you know, going to school and, uh, even going to, to Penn state to college, I wasn't really, you know, I went for mathematics, but I'm like, but I'm going, I'm studying math because I because I kind of like it and I think I'm good at it, but I'm not really sure what I want to do. And so being where I'm at today, I I never, I mean, I don't think about it too often, honestly. So this question is a good self-reflection. I don't even know how or why I ended up where I'm at, but I I think the, the most beautiful thing about it is that I, I truly love it and I get to decide what I want to do every single day when I wake up. Well, let's unpack that one step at a time. First of all, if you're going to be bilingual, uh, Spanish is a good one if you're going to live in Texas, yeah. right? So you've got that. That's probably a great, that's a superpower for you. It's great, especially when I'm ordering tacos, bro. I mean, they always make it. <laughs> well, it's also the future of America. I mean, you know, you know what's interesting is listening to you and watching you on YouTube. I mean, being a YouTuber requires a fair degree of self-confidence. You're putting yourself out there for all the supporters, all the trolls, the cyber world mm -hmm. to see. Uh, it's interesting to watch you do this with such a plum because you said you were actually a shy kid. Is that true? Yes, very, 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 very shy when I was growing up. It was, uh, it was mostly, you know, I, I'm not so sure I was too shy in Spain, to be completely honest. I think a, a lot of the shyness came from being very self-conscious about not knowing the language in the middle of my teenage years as my hormones are going crazy. 
and I'm trying to figure out how to talk to girls, but I literally can't, you know? So I think a lot of, a lot of it was formed around that is that I just, I, I kind of became sort of very shy because it's so very self-conscious, extremely self-conscious. And it wasn't until very recently. And I think this YouTube thing almost forced me in a way to, to battle that discomfort uh, to become less shy and just become somebody that's a lot more comfortable in front of the camera and people. And it, it's sort of based on this overarching um, thing that I've learned and uh, other people have taught me is that if you really feel comfortable with discomfort, you know, feeling comfortable, feeling mm. uncomfortable, it, it's 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 a really good way of building skill sets. And when you feel that you're uncomfortable about something that, that you think there's a lot of value there, just lean into it. And so mm. this YouTube thing was in a way uh leading hard into that mantra is that yeah i am very uncomfortable in front of this camera i'm very uncomfortable about speaking my mind on certain things but i it, it speaks it resonates with me very deeply so i should do it one of the things that i observe about you again this is in contrast to saying that you were self-conscious you're a shy kid I've always, a mantra that I've always had or something that I've always said uh, to people is to be a great performer or or even I would say a broadcaster, uh, that the ones that, that are the most, have the most resonance with an audience are people who seem comfortable in their own skin. Like you, like, mm. like even if you don't like uh, a singer's music or something, you, you'll probably like them or have some kind of affection to them if, if you feel like they're comfortable in their own skin. That's what I get from you watching you on your YouTube channel. You just seem mm. like a guy who's comfortable with who he is, which again, is in contrast to somebody saying that they were self-conscious. What would you say? I mean, you're, you're well-spoken, you're handsome, you've been successful. What, what is, what were you self-conscious about? Uh, self-conscious about my accent, self-conscious about, you know, if I make a mistake, if I say something that's wrong, if I have, uh, you know, grammatical errors, uh, the way I look, the way I laugh, everything, you know, it's, it's a very vulnerable thing to be. I mean, I, I'm sure you've experienced this, you know, you, you mentioned you've been doing this for a long time. I'm sure that there were parts of your career where you were like, uh, maybe, I don't know, you tell me, did you ever feel uncomfortable getting in front of a microphone and speaking your mind? Or was it always natural for you? You know, like for me, it's a constant battle. Every time, every time I get in front of a camera, I'm like, okay, be yourself. Literally, be yourself. Mm. It's okay. Mm. Like, tell people how you feel. It's fine. It's it's completely fine. It's almost like using my vulnerability as a draw for the channel because I know if I am vulnerable, people will like it. Yes. And and, and yes. maybe it, it will inspire other people that yes. are that feel vulnerable doing things to go out and do it. Yes. You know. But did you ever feel like that before doing well, your thing? Of course. I mean, I, I yeah. uh, and most people I've uh, ever interviewed who are extremely successful have some degree of, um, uh, some great degree of insecurity or paranoia or uh, anxiety or self-consciousness or, or all of those things. That comes- Imposter with, syndrome, right? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. I, Jerry Seinfeld at the height of his career, you know, was desperately anxious about whether he was funny. I mean, these these are things that, that we know. but. Uh, but there is something that I see in, like in the digital space there, you know, the, there is the, the people who tend to do well are people who have somehow figured out who they are or figured out how to, how to present themselves as, as if they know who they are. Mm. I think that's always been a maxim in, in, in sort of broadcasting. Um, I, I'm comfortable as a speaker, but I'm self-conscious about all kinds of things, the same things that you said, my looks, whatever, and mm. um, the big nose, being Iranian, you know, those sort of things <laughs> yeah. were, t were tough as a kid. Uh, that nose is always the freaking... <laughs> dude, my nose was, I w when I was like 10 years old, my nose was still 
this size. You know, I was like, I was like a skinny, small, like imagine like I, I was like 30% of the body I am now, but with the same yeah. size nose, you know, I grew into my, the rest of the body caught up to uh. the nose. Um, is the Persian curse, man. <laughs> the other thing about being a content creator, though, that would be different for you after working in, a, in the corporate world or working at Tesla, say, is, is it, it is a hustle. I mean, you don't have the security of a company behind you. You can't take sick leave for a couple of weeks. How, how are you dealing with that element of controlling your destiny but needing to hustle to keep things going? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Part of me is I think where I'm where I'm kind of lucky is that when I started this thing, I did it out of uh, financial security. So it's like, you know, when I when I left Tesla, I couldn't have left it in better terms. Those four little bit over four years were honestly the best four years of my professional career easily. And I've been extremely fortunate to work at Philips as well, Pet Food and Supply before Tesla, where I had incredible mentorship and people that I worked at. But the experience at Tesla was insane, but it was also very financially rewarding. Uh, plus some other investments that my, my wife and I made. So it was made out of, um, you know, the YouTube thing was out of pure just falling into it because I loved it. But the more I'm doing it, the more I'm just realizing just how just it's so fun and being an entrepreneur and just loving building things and, and having a business, the, the part of the, okay, how can I make the best product possible and kind of seeing how far it can go and then seeing what sort of reward that generates and putting that reward to, you know, to work that mm -hmm. sort of the funds that come in and figuring out how, okay, so what can I do with this to make it even better? I love that process so much. And that's what the, what's addicting to me. And, and my wife and I were actually talking about this last night. We always talk about balance. The whole thing of balance is like, hey, do, are you taking time for yourself to like be disconnected and not worry about what's the what's the next video you're going to make? What's the next topic you're going to do? What's the next format you're going to try? And what's the answer to that? Do you take that uh, time? I, I try. I try my best. I try my absolute best. My that's where my wife has been in, incredibly helpful for me in this sort of new chapter of my life is bringing balance and reminding me that, hey, you can't do 12 to 16 hours a day right, obsessing right. over every right. single angle of this thing, especially doing YouTube and not now getting heavier into Twitter too, as that thing evolves over time. It's like, you know, you're a thumbnail creator, a title creator, a videographer, an audio person, yeah. an editor, yeah. you're a script writer. I mean, you, you know, on and on and on and on and on. And I obsess about every single one of those things. Cause I I'm trying to build the best thing that I can just, this is just right. the nature right. of who I am. So, yeah, if, if I didn't have my wife, I'd probably be dead <laughs> from like overworking myself. <laughs> Kudos to her, but it, but it, Honestly. but it's also self-regulated. I mean, it's it's it is a funny thing working in a space, especially if you're an A-type personality. It may, uh, I'm sure you experience this. I experience this all the time with Rook, where I'm stressing about we've got to get the episode out. This you know, and. Yeah. Nobody cares that much, you know. I mean, yes, we have an audience that expects where's the episode, but if it's, it's an hour late, nobody. It's all self-regulated. Nobody's gonna really. You're not gonna miss the, you know, the ratings period or something like network television mm. if you don't get the YouTube video out tonight versus tomorrow morning. But, but you impose that pressure on yourself, correct? I do. It's 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 just. For as long as I can remember, I always want to be the best that I can be. It's a stupid pride ego thing. And it's something that I'm, I'm working like like with. I'm trying to figure out, okay, how can I create a healthy relationship with this thing? It's I, I'm just naturally, I don't know if it's a competitive thing. I've been thinking about it a lot. 
I'm trying to be more introspective about it whenever I do find the times to sit down and relax. It's like, okay, so but why am I this way? Right. And it's the more I think about it, it's just I go back in time. I was like this at Phillips. I was like this at Tesla. I'm like this in YouTube. And by the way, what does being the best mean? Does it mean lots of clicks or does it mean you're a good husband? I mean, does it mean, that's you know what I mean? That's a great question. Yeah, yeah. That's such a good question, dude. Like, and that's that's my problem. It's like, I'm trying to figure out why I'm trying so hard to do everything that I can to make this YouTube channel as 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 valuable as possible, as impactful as possible. And um I and it's because I think I think it's because I love it. Honestly, mm. it's because I love it so much and I love the feedback mechanism of the thing. And and it could be just an obsession with the analytics too. You know, and, and that's these are all questions that I that I constantly uh have to remind myself to ask yeah. and I don't ask myself enough because it's like and it's a da- it's a dangerous one because it's yeah the, you know none of that is real and and it, to a certain extent I mean it, and and some of it you don't even control you know some of it is so true it's a uh, uh, you said something interesting a moment ago about talking about um, having the financial freedom uh, to to start this I mean you one might see diving into the digital space as a you know becoming a youtuber as Risky. It's a risky thing for someone to do, especially when they've got a, a solid career. So you, you're a risk taker. On the other hand, you had that financial freedom. So do you think you would be a YouTuber if you didn't have the financial freedom you got from working at Tesla? In other words, are you, still, are you still the conservative Persian boy that, that needed the <laughs> war chest to be able to you know, step out in digital media? Probably, honestly, probably, because in my head, I'm so if I go back to my sort of mentality while I was at Philips and Tesla, like the the Tesla opportunity was so I was so lucky to sort of have that because it was a company I was passionate about. It was a work that was extremely rewarding that I would love to do. Uh, it was super challenging and it was also very financially rewarding. So if it didn't have that financially rewarding piece, I really think what I would have done is like, OK, uh, what 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 sort of opportunity can I get that's going to maximize my ability to generate enough money to be financially stable so I can figure out what I am and who I am and what I want to do, what I want to do. Mm-hmm. I, th- I, th- I don't think I would have fallen into YouTube unless I had that work chest, to be completely honest, because it, it is it is quite risky. You know, I think it is quite risky because you are putting yourself out there. I mean, who knows what the hell? I, I say so many things every day. Any one of those things could freaking destroy me, you know, but I still do it because I, like, I love it. Yeah. Right? So it's uh, like, let's come. Let, yeah. let me come back to YouTube and, and, and even yeah. uh, I want to ask you about Tesla in a moment. But just you're a phenomenal interviewer, by the way. Let me give you some props. Thank you. You're very good at this. Thank you. I appreciate that. We're only a few minutes in and you can you can tell. huh? That's good. <laughs> Let, let's let's um take, take me a couple of steps back. Um, take me to uh, arriving in America. Uh, you, like me, are a product of the diaspora, but both of your parents are Iranian. How much do you self-identify as an Iranian? I identify quite a bit. You know, I am quite proud to say that I'm Iranian and that, you know, my 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 background is from Iran, and my my entire I mean my entire roots is Iranian. I mean I'm 100% Persian essentially, and it's very very cool. Now I think culturally speaking, I I do f- I feel like I'm American more than anything, to be completely honest, because uh, I came here in my formative years. Um, a lot of the op- you know basically every opportunity that I've ever gotten in my adult years were in America. 
and I felt like it was all of it was merit based. You know, it was because I worked my ass off and I and I was able to get what I thought I deserved. So in that, I think, I mean, it could that could that have happened anywhere else? Of course, I'm sure. But the fact that I was here, you know, that those opportunities were there for me to sort of capitalize on, and I and I capitalized on them. And so from that perspective, I feel quite American. All my friends are American. I love American food. I love the cuisine here. I love, you know, going to national parks and visiting states and stuff like that with my wife. Um, but, I, you know, I, I I consider myself all three in, in some way, shape or form, you know, Persian, Spaniard and American. Well, and you can't you can't ex- escape the way you look. And Farzad is not exactly, you know, Tom Brady as a name, right? Not so, really. <laughs> <laughs> when you when you do a degree in math, I got that as the Persian part uh, in statistics. <laughs> then you work in a pet food company. How did that go over with the Persian yeah. parents? Yeah, it's I mean, honestly, they were just happy I found a job. Because <laughs> <laughs> when I left when I was, you know, when I graduated college, I graduated in 2009 and it was in the middle of the financial uh, crisis we were having. So not a lot of opportunities out there. And with a math degree, I didn't really want to go back and get my my master's and PhD. Honestly, I wasn't the greatest student. I was not the greatest student. I was just not that passionate about, about you know, I liked math. I'd, I'd found that I was okay at it, but I, I wasn't like super passionate about it. I had a crisis of passion, you know, and um so I think my parents were just lucky or they were just happy that I was able to find anything. And the the Philips pet food uh, dis- distribution company was uh, opportunity was kind of a lucky thing because it was our neighbor right next door who worked there and sh- she knew I was looking for work. Like I almost took a part time job at a GameStop uh, because I just didn't find anything that I was like, yeah, I want right. to work there because right. it sounds cool. And so I almost took that. And she's like, hey, come work with us uh, as a temp for a couple of weeks. Our our, uh, our girl that does all the photocopying and the printing and the envelope stuffing and stuff, she's out on surgery for two weeks. Come on by, we'll, you know, we'll pay you a little bit and then keep looking. And it just so happened that when I arrived at the company, uh, they were like, hey, we need somebody with uh, with good analytical skills. Would you happen to know how to work Excel? And I'm like, I think, just let me try it. And then, and then I, I happened to be good at it and I found the work really rewarding. And then once they gave me a full-time job uh, and I started making my own money, it was actually something that I could make to, you know, to live on my own. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I see how this works. <laughs> and I, I think I was very lucky to be at a company that took care of me uh, based, based on the efforts that I put in. Mm. Like so, so freaking lucky. I, I, feel, I feel like a lot of people don't have that, that fortune. Do you have uh, siblings, by the way? Yeah, younger brother. Younger yeah. brother. And how's he doing? He's doing great. He lives in Austin too. All right. He's hanging out. All right. Yeah. Are you folks still in Jersey or are they in Austin? Where are they? They're they're in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Yeah, they're okay. in Pennsylvania. Right. Yeah. Uh but uh they're uh they're looking to move here in in our area once they retire, hopefully in the next 2 to 3 years. So we'll be uh we'll, we'll be in the same spot again, All which right. is I'm very much looking forward to. Yeah. Well, you know, concomitant with that pet job. I mean, it's great that you you recognize that it's uh, I think it's It'll be rewarding for your mentors to hear that you you name check them when you do interviews like this. I've heard you talk about oh, this yeah. on your YouTube channel, that what you learn from that company. But but something that really shifts your life, it seems to have really shaped your life, at least this act of your life before you get older or old, you know, is is your time at Tesla. I mean, that is a mm-hmm. big part of your identity. And it was interesting for me to learn that you you were obsessed, even when you were at the Philips Pet Company, you, you were obsessed with Tesla 
long before yeah. you became an employee. What, if yeah. you can do this briefly, uh, what most captured your imagination about about Tesla? I, I mean, I'm guessing it's more than just the car. It's the company and the ethic, right? Correct. Yeah. For me, it was uh, I stumbled into Tesla when I was looking to invest my money in stocks back when I had a couple thousand bucks in the bank account. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm rich. I have two thousand dollars. Let me invest it in something. Right. And then uh, I stumbled into Tesla stock. And then I started kind of like I should probably learn more about the company. And then once I got a little bit more familiar with not just the car, but Elon Musk and and sort of SpaceX and Tesla and Neuralink and Boring Company and all these things, I just found that to be very inspiring. And then when I was looking at other companies, I didn't find that same level of in, you know that inspiration that you get from from a company. You know, I just didn't find that. And so I went down deep down a rabbit hole. And then it, it sort of aligned with the time that the that the stock for the company skyrocketed back in 2013. And so I'm like, okay, so not only did I uh, luckily find the right company to invest in, I also found a company that seems to be doing it for all the right reasons. Mm. And so I was like, okay, I if I ever get the opportunity to work there, I would love to, because it has sort of that passion thing attached to it as mm. well. It wasn't just like work at a place and make money and, and you know, advance your careers, like do it because you know, it's very important to you. And I, again, I was incredibly lucky to have that opportunity and do that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's way more than just a car for me. I think it is, I think it's quite transformative when it comes to, uh, sort of, uh, transportation and energy. And I think that I, I tend to really gravitate towards things that are, that are, you know, that, that I find a lot of big passion in that I feel like are going to change the world in some mm. manner. Uh, and I, I just become obsessed with those things. And I'm like, okay, well, how can I be part of that in some way? Well, I mean, you, yeah. it's like you willed it to happen because then you become a, a you know, a product manager, at, a, you know, uh, at Tesla. How, how would you characterize your four years at Tesla? What was it like working there? Uh, intense, rewarding, really long hours, very difficult, uh, and, and honestly, I, it was truly the best four years because I, I really got exposure to so many different challenges that I didn't think I could help solve or overcome because of the sheer difficulty and insane deadlines. But being surrounded by the most talented, smartest people I've ever met really kind of gave me an insight into what it's like to make the, sort of what you thought was impossible happen mm -hmm. day in and day out, even though it's like the dumbest little thing that nobody's going to care about, which is 70 trucks show up at your door and you have to figure out how to fill the warehouse up in two days so that the entire service uh, network doesn't, you know, basically collapse. And then you, and it's just 50 of you and you're trying to survive it kind of gives you a little bit of a insight into what it's like to solve extremely difficult problems. And I thought uh, Tesla did a really good job of allowing me and really those around me to just do what they thought was the right thing to solve the problems, which really maximized innovation and ideas and throwing around ideas. It wasn't like a hierarchical, you do this, you do that. It's like, no, the best ideas win try everything and then, and it's kind of like okay, it's okay if we mess up let's keep going let's keep going and that was just a in yeah. its successful iteration is that about the culture of the company once you get there yeah. or is that yeah. about the the wisdom of the company hiring the right people who are all these like bright you know prone mm. to innovation types such a good question i've been pondering this myself i think i think it's both in a way but i think it's the first one i think it's the culture more 
because the one thing that became a trend for me when I was working there was that, yes, they absolutely hired the best people, but 50 to 60% of the people that really became what we call the killers, like they were just out there just doing an incredible job. They came in as if, as if it was another person that I would hire at say Phillips or, or anywhere else. But because of that culture in there being surrounded by, by, by that, Hey, you, that's a good idea. Try it. Mm. I think it really sort of maximized the human spirit of exploration and adventure and trying stuff. And then when you see those things come to life in front of you and you see it get better every single hour, every single day, I think it just lights a fire in you that says, holy crap, this is incredible. I didn't mm. know a company would allow me to do this. I think that is probably 60% of it. And then 40% of it is that type of culture is going to bring in some kind of talent, right? Because now those people mm. see it and they're like, right. holy crap, I'm going to. So it's, it's almost like a flywheel, right? you know? I, I think that is going to be studied uh, in the future. I think how Elon Musk has built these companies is quite unique. It's like a startup culture, but scaled up to 100,000 people plus. Yeah. And I didn't even know that was possible. I thought you you get to 100,000 yeah. people, you're just hierarchy. You're IBM. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But Tesla is very not, it's not that. It's a, it's the largest startup in the world. And I can say that firsthand, you know, it's, it's, it's wild. It's really, it's very weird. It's really interesting to me, Farzad, that, that you left Tesla. Like it mm -hmm. says a lot of, about your character. You're like a guy at that point, I mean, it's two years ago, you're in your early thirties, you know, you, you, I would imagine, uh, most people I would like to guess would, would stick with, uh, you know, both the safety and security, but also the success, you know, uh, of, of just working your way up through that company. And, and, sure. um, it's a pivotal decision that you make to leave the company. I mean, even I'm sure you made a shitload of money and that, that, you know, helped, uh, enable sure. the decision. But even so, you know, that there's a lot of people who make a lot of money at companies who wouldn't dare leave because, you know, why leave? Why leave? Especially at this point in your life. It's not like you're going through a midlife crisis and you need to go to, you know, Greece for three, three years to find yourself right. or something. So, so tell me about that decision to not just leave Tesla, but not even yeah. leave Tesla as some sort of lateral move to the other winning team uh, uh, from the other state. You, you go and become a YouTube guy. It's a fascinating decision. It's weird. I'm a weird person. <laughs> I am a strange dummy. I, I don't even know, dude. I mean, if I think back to my decision making, so um, it was a multitude of things. So it was the, reaching financial stability was kind of like the thing that allowed me to ask the question of saying, okay, so you've been working for 10 years and you've been so incredibly lucky to fall into this, into this situation where you've worked for your dream company and you made a huge difference. You built this incredible network of people. You've uh, made incredible friendships. You've solved all the, you know, all these seemingly impossible problems. Um, and you've built up this team that is incredible in there. So, and then you've reached financial stability. It's like, okay, cool. And then, um, the, the thing that started to come to mind was, okay, so, so am I just going to be a, a Tesla person for the rest of my life? And at that, I started just thinking about them. I go, okay, am I going to work for Tesla for the rest of my life? I'm like, you know, maybe could do worse. You could do worse. You could do a lot <laughs> yeah. worse, right? Yeah. And the the one thing about Tesla, it is a challenging work environment. You know, it is it is 60, 80 hour weeks. Sometimes it's a hundred hour weeks and it's intense. It's an intense 80 hours, right? 
Um, and after four years, I'm like, you know, my, my stocks vested, right? So that gives me, uh, which is that financial stability that I gained, you know, you're there for four years or stock vest. And then it was sort of a transitional period in the company where it went from not being profitable to being profitable. And so I felt like I was a part of that journey of the company going from not being profitable to becoming profitable. And then there were some uh, leadership changes that were happening at the company that there were uh, basically, the the old folks left, new folks came in, phenomenal people. Joey Berg, I want to give him a shout out just by name because he's a phenomenal guy. He really is. But I worked with him for two or three months because I'm like, okay, so I have financial stability. I'm, I'm questioning if I want to work 80 to 100 hour weeks, even if it's for Tesla, but it's for a company that I'm not dictating my own schedule. Even though I'm very passionate about the work, I'm not dictating it. So I feel like I kind of want to try that out for myself and see how, what it feels like. Is this the point where you're like, okay, I'm. This is my time. This is my time. I, I don't have any better signal than now mm. that says, leave, travel, do your thing, and see what happens, right? And that's part of that risk taking. I think I would have never taken unless I had that stability. And so that's that's really how I came to the decision. I was like, okay, so it seems like there's all these factors lining up for me that say, hey, you have to you have to leave almost. Good for you. I mean, I it's a bit of a stretch in a world where people are. Um, you know, taking bullets for not wearing a hijab or something to say it's courageous to leave, uh, but it is—it's a brave decision. I, I mean, a good, good for you for making it. You—you you mentioned Elon Musk, and obviously, I have to—I'd be remiss if I don't ask you about him. I mean, you—you—you yeah, you, sure. you, you see him as an inspiration. It's weird how, over the last year, or I guess even just the last few months, he's he's transformed into this controversial figure uh, that seems to polarize. I mean, I used to mention his name and everybody would just be like, oh, he's good for, he's great. You know, he was on SNL and everybody loved him. And, you know, and now he's like Trump. It's like, you know, (laughs) the society divides on how they feel about Elon Musk. I mean, so talk to me about how he's been inspirational for you because I would imagine you're still in the pro Elon camp, right? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think the the thing that with me and Elon Musk is that I, you know, he is very inspirational, but he's a human. You know, like that's the way I view him. He's a human being, and he's not flawless, right? I worked at his company. I saw firsthand. Just, it's hard, man. Like, like it's 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 hard to build companies that are transformational and you're not going to do things perfectly. And I'm somebody who's been following his arc, his story arc since 2013, 2012, when mm-hmm. I first invested in mm-hmm. Tesla, because I'm like, it's probably responsible for me to kind of learn about the CEO and the company. And so I think what it is, is that it's, he's really hasn't changed too much to be completely honest. I just think the lens, like the, the eyes on him now, it, it went from being maybe a few million people to the entire world essentially right. or the entire western world right. and so when you when you make that when you it's only the people that are interested in him to everybody because he's the richest person in the world then the people that may not align with him morally or with his the way he approaches humor or maybe his takes on his political things I mean, it's it's he's just par for the course. I mean, that that's the way I view it. He's par for the course. He's somebody who's been always been outspoken about what he believes is the right thing. And he's just now tackling not just engineering, he's tackling everything. Mm. And I think folks that 
don't view him favorably. They don't think he's uh, the right person to be at that position, or maybe he's morally corrupt, or he has bad political takes, and he's an evil person. And they have every right to feel that way. Like I'm not upset about people about that, but I, he's just he's just a guy. He just happens to be very smart. But how was he a role model for you? Uh, he's able to build extremely successful companies at the same time, and he seems to be a real person to hmm. me. And um, I'll give an example. So while I worked at Tesla, so he's the CEO of Tesla, CEO of SpaceX. He has Neuralink, he has Boring Company, and he has a uh, a reputation for not just being the guy that talks, uh, that he walks it. I mean, I worked at the company, there's always, dude, Elon was working next to me for like the whole day yesterday. Dude, he was sleeping in the office, right? So he's, he's, he's he leads from the front. And then there were multiple um, situations where I sent him an email, just me to Elon, like two or three different emails where I was like, Hey, I think we can do this better. Mm. And then like the next day he replied, it's like, Hey, Hey, you're right. Yeah. We should try this. This one's not a great idea, but this is right. And every time I sent him an email, he replied. I'm like, how come this freaking guy has the time to reply to me? <laughs> and he has work running all these companies. He has his wow, reputation yeah. for always working. So I'm like, okay. So, I mean, he's shown me that he's just a very hardworking dude mm. that just happens to be at the upper echelon of society. And to me, that's inspirational because it shows me that there's a person out there who is part of, say, the quote-unquote elite or quote-unquote people that are at the top of society, but they carry themselves in a very normal way and they have controversial takes like anybody else mm -hmm. would. You know, when's the last time you've, you've been talking to somebody and somebody says some crazy stuff and you're like, whoa, okay, you're kind of crazy. But you're you're a guy like okay that's that's very good or your friends you're seeing that with your friends and one of your friends is like oh that's kind of crazy right no there's there's a number of CEOs yeah. I can think of who would play it a lot safer or keep the cards to their chest he right. does say controversial things sometimes I think knowing right. that they're gonna they're gonna ruffle feathers sure. right yeah I'll give you that yeah but that's 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 from my perspective I just think he's just so atypical from 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 that perspective and that role and I just I find that inspirational it tells me okay so you don't have to be you don't have to be this cookie cutter guy. Mm. You can just be yourself and you can just build stuff. I just think that's really cool. Just, just as a sidebar, what do yeah. you think of this, the, the situation with Twitter? It's funny how there's this emerging mainstream media narrative that that Elon Musk is destroying, has turned Twitter into a cesspool of of arguments <laughs> and whatever. And I'm like, really? You 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 don't think Twitter was that before? <laughs> you know, like, right, exactly. Yeah. Twitter has suddenly become a cesspool. <laughs> like, you know. But, yeah. I think it's but, people that were never on Twitter that came on Twitter. They're like, whoa, what is this terrible thing? I'm like, bro, you have no idea. <laughs> well, well, but do you think his, whatever all that magical sauce that he has that, you know, has been so successful with these other companies, do you see that happening with Twitter or is Twitter an aberration that is, is in fact, not not going so well for him i think it's going well i personally think it's going well now i'm biased right mm. i mean I, I i should probably be the last person people are listening to when they think it's going well i think people should do you know if, if they want to see if it's doing well or not but i think that the metrics that are clear is that it's had the largest user base ever and my personal experience on twitter has never been better because i am getting exposed to things that i would have never gotten exposed to before and i like being challenged i like I'm the kind of person that likes being challenged. Like if I'm thinking a certain thing and I see something that's completely different, I'm like, wow, that made me feel uncomfortable. Why? Hmm. Whoa, that I didn't like that idea. Why? You're right. Like, I like going through that thought process. So for me, it's it's a really cool experience. 
I think what Elon Musk, and from my opinion, what he's really good at is building teams and creating cultures where people can flourish and do a great job. So from that perspective, I, I just don't see how Twitter won't be successful. I mean, the company is already, uh, based on his guidance to his investors, is already uh, basically cash flow uh, break even. And it's going to be profitable here in the next couple of quarters uh, with 1,500 employees versus 8,000. Mm -hmm. And the company's still around. Okay. So I don't know if that isn't a sign of success. I don't know what else is. So, um, yeah, I think it's doing a good job. It, it's, I mean, the, the, the difficulty with Twitter, I think, is that it is a social media company and it relates to sort of human emotion and human psychology. And it's uh, a lot of it is political. Uh, you know, when people share their opinions on Twitter or they share their political views, it usually generates a lot of tribalism mm -hmm. and that sort of tribalistic environment, I think is very, it's just very challenging. Mm -hmm. And I think Elon, if, you know, one of his weaknesses is that perhaps he's not the strongest socially capable person out there. I still think he means well, and I still think he is a person who's doing this stuff for the right things, but sometimes he might be tone deaf. But that's just a weakness, you know? The thing about him meaning well, you've talked about what you see as the honesty of his mission, that he isn't just yeah. about money in your view. And you believe that should be part of your path as well. That, Correct. That, that you want to be doing things not just for material gain, but that you have some sort of, I don't know if it's existential or some sort of uh, um, global Connection. idea that you of, of, of helping the world somehow. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I, I, it's it's an inspiration from uh, an Elon Musk type character, right? And it's an inspiration from uh, Lane from Phillips. You know, these are people that uh, they're business people, but they're people that were I could see them working. You know, I could see Blaine working. I, I reported directly to the CEO of the company, the CFO of the company, the CEO of the company, and yeah, uh, and this, you know, a bunch of other executives at Phillips. And I could see, you know, these largely these are people that just really love what they do. And when I saw sort of Elon's behavior and the role within the company that he took and the lore behind him, I'm like, okay, this guy's taking it to yet another level. Mm. It's like, okay, the principle is if you're doing something that's extremely important and valuable for planet Earth, the the money will come. Just build the thing. Build mm. the thing so that people mm. are maximally happy, maximally hopeful, and are they are in a in a place where they feel like, okay, I'm I'm hopeful about the future. And that's inspirational to me. It's like, okay, so given my skill sets and what I do, What's the thing that, wh what's my thing? Because I, again, I still don't know what it is. I'm, I might be doing this YouTube thing and it's going well, but I, I'm just riding a wave. Mm. And so my guiding principle is just always make sure you're doing it because it's making you happy and that people are truly finding it valuable. And then build it in the most honest way possible mm -hmm. and then it will come. Whatever comes, comes. Just do it in a very honest way. I actually find it very, the, um, the digital space is... You know, to a certain extent, it's like, I, you know, when I was a um, fresh out of high school and I was in university, I was mm -hmm. a busker, you know, street busker, like means like you go and play guitar and you sing on the street and stuff. Mm -hmm. And you find out how good you are because nobody fucking is going to st stand and watch you or give you money if they don't think you're good. You know, they just walk True. by and go about their day. And it's kind of like that in, in the digital space, except, you know, and add a bit of sensationalism and if it bleeds, it leads and all of that kind of stuff that, that we know people like. And, and so there's these decisions decisions you have to make you know there's I don't know if you've faced them yet but there's going to be decisions you make with your YouTube channel where you say here's something I can do here's a video I'm going to do that I know is not going to get a gazillion clicks 
but mm, I think yeah. this is the right thing for me to do. Um, yeah. And that's, those are tough decisions. I mean, you know, we do stuff about, uh, um, you know, the life in Baluchistan, for example, we did an episode and I, and I knew, I knew this is not going to be, we're just not going to get, but I really think this is the right thing to do to talk about the, the Baluchi people who've been so involved in the current revolution and all that, you know? And so these are tough decisions. How do you navigate those? Such a great question. I, that's a, that's a battle that I have from time to time because my guiding principle is do, do content that makes you happy. Right. So if, if I'm basically taking my, my day's work that I would do researching my invest, my invest, my investment in Tesla, researching the auto market, uh, researching the AI market. And I'm just, uh, instead of like, just letting it sit in my brain, I'm putting it out mm. on a PowerPoint style thing. And then I'm like, okay, check out what I researched today. Mm. And I'm going to try my best to explain to you how I'm arriving to these conclusions. That's really what I'm doing. And then I'm like, okay, but the other thing I like to do is play guitar. So from time to time, I'll drop a guitar video. I'm like, screw it, I'll drop, I'll drop a guitar video. The other thing that I'm finding very fascinating right now is that my car can now drive itself for the last two weeks. I haven't driven, my car just drives. I'm like, okay, time to talk while the car drives, right? It's just it's just trying to be like, I think this will be really cool and then just do it. It's not so much, wow, I think this is gonna get me 100,000 clicks. Wow, I think this one's gonna get me 200,000 clicks. But there's no way you're a, you're a statistics guy. There's no way you're not watching those numbers like of a course hawk, I am. right? Yeah. Of course I am, yeah, of course I am. But I'm, I'm, more, I'm more like, okay, so I'm, I'm looking at it, I'm like, what's the like ratio, right? Is it 99% like, is it 99.5% like? And so from that perspective, it's like, okay, I found it cool. And then like, and they liked it. Maybe it's something I continue doing, right? But it's it's never from a mentality of, oh, this this one is like the this one is the thing that's going to get me a hundred thousand mm. views. I'm going to do a video like this. Like I'm not optimizing the YouTube thumbnail for clicks. I'm not optimizing the the title to like be as clickbaity as humanly possible. I'm trying to like navigate this fine line of just be as honest as possible mm. with your content, but then also make sure that it's the people that want to see it want to see it. But it's not like, oh, Mr. Beast, I'm going to get 200,000 views. I, I still want to feel happy doing my content, you know? And I could be lying to myself. I could be like saying all this. And then actually when I'm making the video and the thumbnail, I might be subconsciously making actions to make it go go bigger. And I don't even know. Hmm. But I don't know. It, it's That's the, that's the weird, oh, trippy oh, thing about oh. creating content and doing this media stuff is like, um, it's just, it can sometimes be very confusing when you're, trying to figure out of concepts because you're like, okay, did I really come up with this myself or was this influence based on everything else that I've done before? Well, it's, you know? there's, there's no, to a certain extent, there's no blueprint, right? It's a new world. This, all of these, these platforms we're using didn't even exist. I mean, the, 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 we're right now we're talking on zoom that didn't even exist yeah. three years ago, at least not yeah. popularly. Like, I mean, so uh, it's, it's, it's a new, it's a new world. Who is your audience? Who, what have you learned about who the people are that follow you? It's 95% male. Uh, that's one because it's it's very tech related and and sort of, you know, it's things. It's not very, I don't know. It's just dudes like what I talk about. And I'm a dude, so I think that's part of it as well, probably. Are you okay um, with that? You, do you, are you, I mean, do you ever go, how, what do I need to do to bring a bigger female audience or something? I, I think uh, earlier on, I was like, man, I really want to be as inclusive as possible. So mm -hmm. like, what am I doing wrong that so little women are watching me? But then I'm like, well, that's the wrong question. The question should be, what do you enjoy making? Hmm. You know, like, what do you enjoy making? And then if that's, and if people love it, great. Like, if people love what you love making, that seems like the best chance for success long term. 
if because it's it creates sustainability it creates uh it prevents burnout as much as humanly possible like i've been doing this for almost a year and a half now straight i've been dropping five videos a day and i've been wow. doing it for a year and a half right wow. And, and just now am I feeling a little burnt out? I'm like, man, I've been doing this for a really long time. So I'm like, babe, I think we need to go on vacation. So we booked a trip to freaking Punta Cana in about a month. So nice. like, okay, so that's going to be my break, you know? Right. So that to me proves that I am approaching this in a manner that is sustainable long-term, hmm. right? And the, the audience is the audience. So I think, and it goes back to sort of your initial question is that vulnerability thing is like the honesty is doing it because you love it. I think as long as I'm doing that and the one video that gets maybe 5,000 views that it's like, who cares? Those 5,000 people I think are going to be like, I hope, wow, this guy is like himself because mm. that's who I am. Yeah. And so I, 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 I vibe with that. That's freaking yeah. cool. Right. I, I want, I want that audience and I don't care who they are. I want people that enjoy doing what I love. Mm -hmm. And if that's really greedy and stupid of me to say, I don't care. This is, I'm doing it for me. You know, I'm doing it for me. And if people want to come along with me, great. And so from an audience perspective, I just know they're all dudes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you know who would really love or who already does, but I'm sure would really love what you do. Iranian guys. I mean, okay. Iranian guys love cars. They love tech, and they, you know, they're obsessed with actually cars. You know, it seems. I mean, we've done a couple of sure. episodes about this. What is the obsession of Iranians and cars? And it does. It is it, the obsession skews male for sure. Um, and what I, is it? What is the obsession? Um, it's based on a, I mean, a number of things. We actually there's a there's a full episode that we did on one of the couple of, a couple of uh, well known YouTubers, in fact, who uh, do their who do car talk in in Persian and 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 in English, but have a their audience is almost entirely Iranian. Um, it's a lot of things. I mean, it's 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 how status was measured by the kind of car you drive for the longest time mm -hmm. in Iran and and continues to be and um you know it's 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 culturally embedded for a number of reasons but but um but I was thinking I mean I don't know and perhaps this podcast will help I don't know how many people in Iran know about you but there's there's a big audience there that is that you know once they find out about you will want to will take a lot of pride, you know, like they'll, because you're this Iranian guy. That's and, very humbling. You know, really, I think, and you're doing the kind yeah. of content that I know will appeal to a big part of the audience. I, I guess, you, I, you, I don't know how, if your analytics show that it's hard with YouTube because because it's not actually, you need VPNs and stuff in Iran. We can't tell with this platform how, um, how many people are, we know on the other platforms say we have about a 30% audience in Iran. We don't know on YouTube because we don't, they can't, it's hard to count mm -hmm. it, but, but you may have a big, but we can tell from the letters or, you know, from the, the, the response and stuff. But, but I, I would imagine that yeah. that'll be a, um, a big audience for you as, as you continue to grow. Um, that makes me feel very, uh, it's very cool and, and humbling because that's, uh, you know, it's, it's like I often think about that, too, is like I, I wonder and this is like part of my imposter syndrome that kicks in because it's like you can't be somebody that people are going to watch and be like, oh, my God, I'm inspired to do my thing now. Like, who the fuck are you? Like, I'm just a dude, you know, 
and and when you say that like it, it fills me with a lot of like like joy when i hear that it's like there might be like a few guys in iran that might find this kind of content cool no you're i mean there is a reason your channel is resonating i mean you're being very modest i mean you're really good at what you do you you really when you pull out the little thing and you're pointing about as you say you're you're bringing us along with the research that you would do anyway and the and the observations you're making that's what the best analysts in the world do. I mean, you are, you know, Sometimes. you're very good at it. It makes sense to me that you have an audience that you have and you're very accessible too. I'm not a tech guy, but I can watch your stuff and understand what you're talking about. That's that that's you bringing that's me awesome. along, you know, and and I I really appreciate that. Listen, man, I'm I'm so uh grateful for uh to get the chance to talk to you and and I congratulate you on on all that you've accomplished Thank so you, far. Man. If I have a final question for you, it's funny because I was going to ask you you know, you've said, I, I saw this uh, this Instagram live or something you did a few months ago where you, you said you're at a time in your life where you really want to figure out who you are as a person. And I, I was going to end off the interview mm -hmm. by saying, what have you found out? But you've said a few times through the interview, you're still on that journey. So, so yeah. <laughs> let me ask this as a final question. What have you learned about what it takes to be a great innovator? Um you have to be comfortable with the idea of trying a lot of things that are going to be stupid and putting it out there and having as little ego as humanly possible to absorb the feedback that you're getting. And then you keep trying and you keep trying, but that is only possible if you're passionate about what you're doing. So you can't just do that with like, Oh, you know, I think this is my opinion, right? Mm -hmm. I don't. There's no science behind this, but I I don't think you can innovate on something like say, oh man, I I think couches can be so much better, but you're not really passionate about people being comfortable at home, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh man, let me try this thousand different ways. You're gonna go, you're gonna go insane before you go broke, right? But if you're passionate about something, then you have the foundation to say, okay, I'm going to do everything it takes to make it happen. And then at that point, it's just overcoming the fear of failure mm. and the fear of people saying that it sucks and the sort of like the ego hit of it sucking. And so it becomes more of an obsession about making stuff better and always trying. And the second you, you, you try something that doesn't work, you go back and you do a root cause analysis. Okay, why didn't it work, right? And it also involves asking the right questions. Like, why didn't it work? Were you comfortable in this position? Were you not comfortable in this position? How are you using this couch? Like, is it the color? Is it the material? Like, I, I'm just using a couch as a right, stupid right, example. Right, right. But I think it's applicable to everything. I think the passion is one. You have to love what you do. And the second is uh, you you can't be afraid to fail. And you uh -huh. can't be afraid to continuing to try uh -huh. stuff over and 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 over again and being very vulnerable to that process. That's yeah. really valuable advice. The thing about don't be afraid to fail it's so much easier said than done, right? Yeah, it's brutal. Because when you fail, when that's you know you've, you've you you, it's hard to lick the wounds and go. I'm going to keep going, especially when there's a bunch of people around you going, well, you know, you're not good at this or you failed or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, and especially when you've had success in you know when you've done what you've done, say at Tesla, and 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 uh, and you know, then you're you're failing at some video and on youtube uh it can it can wreak havoc with where we started with that self-consciousness and and all of 100%. that 100 percent. 
So I mean, I'll give an example. I mean, real quick, it's I, I put out a video a couple months ago where I was analyzing GM's financials for the quarter. And I, I made a fatal error reading their uh, cash flow statements. I was rushing through the freaking form like an idiot because I'm like, wow, all these things are pointing towards the wrong direction. I was like, oh, I can't I can't wait to share this with the world because nobody else is talking about this. Right. And then I, I misread one of the numbers. I put it out and it was uh, that number was completely false. And, uh, you know, folks on YouTube that, uh, you know, I have a fan base that loves to hate on me and uh, I call them fans because they have the best retention on YouTube. <laughs> and, you know, they don't realize that they're the ones that's that are great. allowing me to take my wife out for an extra date. It's like it's like I love it. It's like you guys. Are, that's so you. healthy. What a healthy way to see your trolls. <laughs> <laughs> but like but like they I mean, they came at me, bro. It was like it was like a lot it, that mess with my mindset a little bit for for a few days because i'm like holy crap i'm a failure but then i'm like okay hold on a second hold on bro meaning like, they said you're a fraud you don't know what yeah, you're saying or exactly yeah. you're a fraud you're full of shit you don't know what you're saying you're a scam artist you you're a elon cultist i mean you you know throw it throw it all you know tesla cultist crazy person you know racist slurs you name it everything came at me and i'm like oh shit like like that imposter syndrome kicked in like crazy but i'm like okay but listen when is the last time you didn't make a mistake? Like think back to your time at Phillips, think back to your time at Tesla, think back at other stuff that you've done that you've experimented with. It's part of the process, bro. So, mm. so what I did is I, I, I corrected the video. I was very vulnerable about where I made the mistake. I told people, this is what I did to make the mistake. And then I moved on. And then a few days later, I was fine. I'm like, okay, that wasn't so bad. Right. <laughs> you just right, move right. on, you know, but you right, have to right, right. go through that process and that, and that experience is is very valuable because it teaches you that the earth like you're not going anywhere the earth the, the, the sun's going to rise again and it, it's fine it's just part of it's part of building that confidence within yourself that even in mistakes which is a very human thing to do you can use that uh, as a strength because then you're like okay now now i'm imparting that knowledge onto people listening to this right so this became a strength this became a a, a thing for me that i'm now a little bit wiser because i went through that experience and so i encourage people to learn those experiences so they can be wiser to pass it on to the people that need to hear it. Yeah. Faz, that was great talking to you. Thanks for Likewise, the, man. thanks for the stories. Thanks for the wisdom and uh, thanks for the participation. It, uh, I look forward to doing it again. I hope if you come up to Toronto, you'll come into our studio and we'll do it in person next time. That would be awesome, man. Thank you so much, Jan. I really appreciate you. This was a, uh, one of the best uh yeah podcasts that i've done and i'm just so honored and yeah i i feel like i don't deserve to be here but i i'm just so appreciative oh, that you reached out and i'm just really yeah really thankful thank you so much thank you thank you and and uh to be continued take care of yourself thank you take See care you. bye episode 257 from Tehran to Tesla. Remember, for all things Rook-related, you can go to our website, rookmedia.com, where you can also figure out how to support us by pressing the Support Us button, funny enough. Uh, our next guest 
is uh, someone we've had on the show before and uh, someone we love, a genderqueer nightlife personality, actor and musician based in New York City. Cave on Zand is known for their eccentric live performances and parties, uh, as well as their established personal style. Cave was born in Wilmington, North Carolina into a Persian family. Kayvon's the founder of Zandwagon. That's a model management and specialty casting company which represents individuals from a spectrum of ethnicities as well as transgender and cisgender people filling a necessary void. This Sunday, April 23rd, Kayvon will participate in the annual Persian Parade in New York City. This Persian Parade 2023 is dedicated to the women life freedom movement in Iran, the uprising, and right now... Kayvon Zand joins me from New York. Hello, Kayvon. Hi, Gian John. I love saying that together, Gian John. It's endearing. It's fancy. It's, it's bougie. I like it. Thank you for having me, Gian. You, you can say so Gian. I mean, you speak Persian quite well. You're doing your North Carolina version of Gian with the Gian. Well, you know, actually, since you want to be correcting me, Gian. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> actually, you... you, you you can be a little bit more forward to yourself with that, you know, Gian. Say Gian. Aradige, Gian. But uh, Gian well, I, I mean, I just wasn't expecting Gian John uh, from... I was whitewashing myself a little bit. I'm not going to lie. I wanted you to feel comfortable. But since we want to get Persian, honey, we can start speaking the Farsi and everything. Kayvon <laughs> John, I want to ask you about the Persian parade. But um, first of all, there's been so much activity amongst the Iranian community in New York City since the uprising began in September. You know I lived in New York for a couple of years, and I never saw this many Iranians. Has it been a revelation for you as well, the amount of activism you've seen in the last seven or eight months? I think that's such a fascinating point. They always say, like, the light at the end of the tunnel. This isn't the end of the tunnel because there's a lot of work to do, but there's definitely light coming in the middle of this tunnel, and it's fascinating because... Having lived around here for like 14 years, many people would say, oh, you're in New York. There's so many Iranians out there. I'm like, well, where are they? Because I'm not seeing them. But if they're talking about Long Island, you know, that's a whole other conversation. Yes, there is a big Persian population out there that definitely um, is living that suburbia, glamorous lifestyle. But you're right. Since this revolution, which it is a revolution has taken place, there has been like this coming together and embracing one another. I felt like when I first moved here, especially in New York City, I felt like being Persian was secondary. It's like first you were a New Yorker and then you were Persian. Now I'm starting to see you're Persian first and then a New Yorker. Mm. And I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, I mean, you've been really active during the uprising and you posted something I remember in November that um, that that resonated with me, but it was interesting because it's about survivor's guilt and I was thinking about you and thinking you pre pretty much grew up the way I did in, in the West. You grew up in America. Do you feel guilty that you have not been in Iran fighting a more direct fight? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I, I, there is a lot of guilt. I think especially in this past year since we last spoken, I've started speaking a lot to people in Iran through Instagram lives. You know, kind of my life changed since then. And just speaking to people and realizing I'm sitting in a place of privilege, even to say like, oh, this is what should happen. We should be doing this. E even with me speaking about my hopes and beliefs, I feel guilty because I'm like, you know, it's it's a lot different to sit and watch someone on the field as opposed, you know, to getting tackled. And it's, why am I making sport references? Because I'm not a sporty person at all. But to get serious, you know, it's like, it, it really is 
it really is a feeling of guilt because at the end of the day, it's a lot easier to mention as a spectator. And I know people probably don't like that because a lot of activists here are doing work. And, you know, I guess there are certain amounts of risks, especially if you're really notable, people like Bastian and John and things like this. But I think there is a lot of guilt because at the end of the day, we do have privilege. And it's always hard for privileged people to first admit that to themselves and then to say it out loud. So it has been something that I've been training myself to do and I'm still working on it. I totally appreciate what you're saying. And I think a lot of people... Um, would appreciate hearing what you're saying, especially those who are watching and listening to us in Iran perhaps right now. But but at the same time, I would push back and say, first of all, I mean, um, you know, privilege, like, you know, let's let's be real here. You're a, uh, you, you know, you're a Persian genderqueer kid who grew up in uh, in North Carolina. I mean, there could be more privilege in terms of the way you grew up. And, and the same for me as the only ethnic kid in, uh, in, in my area when I was growing up here. It wasn't I didn't have it the same as as rich white people did, uh, and I didn't grow up in a rich family. Um, but but also, I think we all have a role to play, right, in this global revolution. And I I don't think, uh, to a certain extent, I think the people in the diaspora have a really important role to play in terms of helping, facilitating, enabling, supporting those inside Iran. It, it, we can be a lifeline. So, um, so I think we, as long as we're playing an important role, maybe that offsets or mitigates some of that survivor's guilt. Does that make sense? It does. I think we just have to check ourselves and be completely honest. Why are we playing a role? If we're doing it for clout because we want to be seen, then have a seat because there are people who are doing that. There's a trend, there's clicks, there's views, you know, there's momentum, there's opportunities to speak to press. There's people who are taking that route. And there's people who are speaking because they've had their own agenda. They want to see Iran be a certain way, the Iran that they knew, and they're using this revolution as a way to insert their agendas and their beliefs. Mm. If you're doing it because you genuinely want Iran to be a better country, regardless of you even visiting or being there, then I think you truly are coming from a place of, you know, genuine, you know, um, as a genuine ally. And I'm going to say ally because I know this is like a hot topic. People were born in Iran, you know, and live here and you're still Iranian. I, I get it. But at the end of the day, it's here's the privilege. Even if Iran were to change, probably most of the people are going to, you know, if they're not going to go back and forth, they're going to stay where they are because it's become their home. So I think we just have to be mindful that we're, if we're a voice of Iran, let's be a voice of Iran and not a voice of what benefits us as individuals who are living in the diaspora. But we also have a stake in it. And it's not just a, I mean, yes, it's self-interested, but it's the self-interest of wanting to see my family that I haven't been able to see for decades because I can't go to Iran. I mean, you know, uh, a German person or an Australian doesn't face that issue, right? That is a that is something that is placed upon us because of the situation in Iran. It's true, and that's a conversation that is definitely controversial because there's people who will disagree with that. There's people who say you have no problem if you go to Iran. There's people who say you will. I mean, I at the end of the day, I think it's just such a. I'm going to just be blunt. It's a shit show over there. You don't know what to expect. I mean, you know. The journalist that was in Turkey, I mean, you know, it's like there's just so many like what ifs and mm. no one. I don't think there's like a consistency of like who's at risk. I think anyone could be at risk. I think it's just that much of a, you know, a shit show. It's like but at the end of the day, yeah, you're right. Like seeing your family and those sentimental things, of course. And I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to express your opinion. But I think if we're going to say we're the voice of Iran, we're speaking on behalf of the Iranian people, then we have to make sure we really are speaking on behalf of the Iranian people. 
And then if that's not the case, you say, this is what I personally want. Mm-hmm. But I see a lot of, not a lot, because at the end of the day, we all want Iran to be free. But I do see some people, like at the protests at the UN, I saw a lot of Pahlavi supporters who wanted to use this as a movement for, you know, Reza Pahlavi, which there's nothing wrong with that. But at the end of the day, then say, this is what I personally want. Mm. Not this is what the people of Iran want, because Mm. do we know what the people of Iran really want? I think the people of Iran, do they even know what they want? But I think they're in a position to speak as opposed to say, we're speaking on behalf of the people of Iran. I I mean, I've certainly, I've, I've certainly never used that language speaking on behalf of the people of Iran. That's something I would never deign to do. But, but I do say I, I'm, I'll do what I can to support uh, from the you know from the outside whatever we can I mean that it, it, ultimately I think I think there's there seems to be at least or there should be general agreement that um, self determination for Iranian people inside Iran that you know and and for us to su- to support that it's interesting that you mentioned the, that um, this year has been something transformative for you I, and by the way I do want to get to the Persian parade but this is interesting to me because I noticed that since you were on. Um, we've got like a, a hundred thousand more followers. Um, and, uh, and you, and you were telling me when we were talking, um, before a little while ago that, that uh, a lot of those new followers are inside Iran. I'm curious what you have learned by interacting with them. And, and, and if you'll forgive the question, I mean, it's meant with love. Why are they following you? Like, what, what do you think? Um, the appeal has been that you've gained that many followers. Yes, and I just want to be completely clear. We live in, in a social media world, and there's followers and there's bot followers. These are real followers. And I say that because it's wild to me that almost 100,000 followers have come from inside of Iran, a country where Instagram is not even legal, where they're using filter shikan. Um, when, I'm going to speak on the positive. My Farsi has become a lot better. Honey, I can have a conversation with you and cuss you out at the same time. So <laughs> in Farsi very well. No, I'm just kidding. You know, it, it's there's it first started out more serious, more me kind of like taking like baby steps and being afraid to speak to people in Iran because I'm like, I'm so like out there, you know, are they gonna judge me? Are they gonna be like, you know, what's going on with this character? Why is he even here? It all happened by accident. But um I've learned a lot because I've I've realized there is a, now we're at a point having been, you know immigrants or you know being me being born here in the states we're now um have a different culture of our own outside of the people in iran and there's a huge cultural difference even when i speak to them um a lot of their opinions on you know just what we consider to be appropriate what they don't consider to be appropriate there um a lot of their thoughts on how they want to live is so different than what we live in a lot of the um you know what's interesting it's weird we live in a free country but with speech amongst like speaking Every day, there's so much more freedom there amongst Iranian people because here we live in such a PC world. We're afraid to say things, mm. but they speak so openly. There's not that fear of like going to offend someone. And yeah, you can be offended, but at the end of the day, it's like it's nice to know that the youth there really is um, not that much different than a lot of the kids here. It's like it's the only thing that's separating us right now is the fact that we have more freedom. You know, so. It's been fascinating to say why they're following me. I, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't follow me. I think, I think, <laughs> I, think I, I think I could be annoying at times, but I, I think the truth is maybe because I just speak really rook and openly and in these lives, I say a lot of things that maybe Iranians find too respectable to say, you know, my hair is down. I, I, I wear my makeup. I'm queer. I speak openly. I, 
and I speak very openly about a lot of things that are very taboo to Iranians. I think that's appealing to them to see somebody who lives here, but who's just willing to be critical and open, not of mm. just my own country, you know, but also like how I feel about things that are done in Iran. There's an exchange. Mm. They teach me things that I didn't think of before. And I teach them things of how things are done here. So it's, it's been nice. It's been fun. Tell me about the Persian Parade. It's taking place this Sunday in New York. It starts at Madison Avenue at 39th Street. So if you're listening to us in New York right now, here's your opportunity to be part of this. It's 11.30 a.m. It starts on Sunday. You you took part last year. You were on the this iconic Nowruz float. What can you tell us about this parade? It's interesting. The The parade is just like this really like amazing, like, cultural moment for Iranians, you know, you have that conversation about where are all the Iranians, it's like, show up on this day, show up Saturday, and you'll see where all the Iranians are, it's like, where do all these people come from, where do they live, like, you know, it's like, wild. it's like, for one day, Manhattan becomes like, you know, not Tarangelis, like, Terry York, I don't know, that's not cute, but whatever, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's really wild, because like, where does everyone come from, it's like, it's it's amazing, Um, last year, I had the privilege of opening the parade on the float with my um family, her the first float out and that was like really exciting i was nervous because my i have like these little small children like hanging on and waving these flags in the float this year is going to be different because um first of all i want to thank them for inviting me back it's going to be you know woman life freedom is a theme so some people might call it a protest but it's not going to be the protests that we've seen it's going to be a parade with a meaningful sentiment towards woman life freedom and i'm going to be on the Khuzestan float you know to honor Kian, and I think it's going to be powerful just having his picture there, you know, being a seven, no, a 10 year old kid, and having my daughter. I said it's my daughter, seven, my daughter there, who's seven, my four year old, and my one year old mm. on that float, just to show again that privilege we're talking about. Because I always say this I'm like, you know, I when I see all these tragedies are happening around, I'm like it could be us. So just to have my kids there, you know, on that float, that is going to be a really powerful image. And I, I'm just really honor to be able to be a part of this you know um also because like you know they have like we have a lot of like iranian celebrities in this world and like you know shadam shapat is going to be there and like people like that but for them to also recognize a queer person like me who doesn't really have like the machine behind me who's kind of doing my own thing it really just that that really shows how inclusive they are with this mm -hmm. parade and i think that's really wonderful so yeah it's it's an honor it's it's going to be fabulous it's going to be beautiful to look at but it's going to be meaningful and i think some of the most meaningful ways we can protest as people is through art through music through you know performance nicole ansari is going to be there shali zomardi is going to be there shahram shapara as you say i love that you're going to be on the khuzestan float which is close to my heart um it's interesting that you're bringing your kids uh tell me about that tell me about how your kids are processing this moment in, in of being Iranian as kids who've grown up in America who, you know, would have every reason to feel a detachment from being Iranian um, and what they know of this uprising and what's been happening. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish I could lie to you and be like, yeah, I've had this amazing, like, thoughtful, like, you know, conversation with people and parents and i was able to really break this in my children i haven't had that conversation with them yet they're still very small um you know they recently are understanding the concept of even just death so it, it is something that i want to have my children acknowledge but i still haven't figured out the right way to have a conversation with them they'd be like hey this kid behind you actually was killed by 
the government of the country I'm saying you should be proud of. Hmm. I do not have that conversation with adults, let alone my child. You know, it's, I wish it was that easy. I wish it could be as easy as saying, hey, you know, the two dogs we had this year passed away. You know, I, I haven't figured that out. And um, do they do they see themselves I, as Persian? Do they know that they're about their Iranian background? Yeah, they do. Oh, very much. So. Like, especially in the lives, my daughter comes and say, Salam. You know, they, they're trying to learn Farsi. You know, they watch little like instructional videos on YouTube to learn Farsi. We do a Noru spread every year. We do the Hafsin. We do Yalda. I mean, I'm, do, I'm doing more Persian stuff than my Iranian mother did with me growing up, you know. Um, I'm also the PTO president for my kids' school. Shout out to LCCS. But um, yeah, right. Good taste. But there's actually a new Persian teacher there. And it was so exciting because the other day she got to meet Zara. And like she just gave Zara such a big hug. And Zara was like, salam. You know, this is the first time she was interacting with like another Persian like teacher like in her school. And I, I really try being an Iranian-American, especially since my partner, you know, she's not Iranian, to make them proud and aware where what they are because there is so much whitewashing in my life you know we speak english at home so i don't want to take away this opportunity for them to be a part of history in the making but it's still a balancing act how do i find a way to introduce the harsh realities of the culture that i'm just trying to get them to put their feet into as a swimming pool so yeah i haven't figured that out yet um Jianjun. and hopefully um i will but as of now you know, if she may ask me who this kid is when she's on the float, and I don't know how I'm going to answer that question. You know, mm -hmm. I I don't lie to my children, but I also am mindful of the fact that they are children. So, yeah, I'm figuring it out. Um, before I let you go, and I mean, we'll, we'll I'd love to have you back for a more in depth conversation once again. I mean, we you know, we wanted you on to talk about this Persian parade, but um, and and once again, if you're in New York City, it's this Sunday. Kayvon would be part of it, a bunch of uh, uh, other well-known Iranians. Uh, starts at 11.30 a.m. Madison Avenue at 39th Street. Um, just curious how you're feeling. There was such a, a well of enthusiasm and, and love and support and unity that happened in the fall around this rebirth of Iranian pride that we were feeling around the world and inside Iran, too. I mean, to interview young people inside Iran who... You know, I remember one young woman saying, I was never proud to be Iranian, but now I am just because of this uprising, et cetera. Are you feeling I, I, we're sort of in a lull now where the, the revolution hasn't, you know, completed itself, as you said in the beginning? How are you feeling about the possibility of change in Iran and where we're at right now? I definitely, I mean, even before this revolution, I've always wanted to see Iran be a, a democracy. And um, I just want to clarify what the opportunity, like when I mentioned Pahlavi, like he wants the same thing. So I don't want people to think that I have an agenda against him or for him. I just, I truly, like he speaks and everyone who's involved, I want to see Iran as a free democracy. And, um, you know, because this is called rock and I am a rock person. I, yeah, their momentum definitely is not the same, you know, but... I think at the beginning, just to hear like someone say Massa's name, like on the media here, just to hear like us be acknowledged was such a win, yeah. you know, and even if, even if like Iran is not like, you know, I, I don't know why I'm getting emotional. Is it like a free country? It's like, it would just, it's just nice to be acknowledged, you know? And I think, yeah. um, 
I think that's what so many people want is just to be acknowledged. And yeah, so there, there are wins in it and people have to look at it that way. You know, there are wins in it. Like, I still think it's happening. I still think, you know, I'm not losing hope. Yeah. Maybe in the beginning it was a, I don't know if this is the right way to put it, but it, it was a lower bar. You're right. I mean, I felt that we felt that excitement of, wow, the world has woken up to our existence and doesn't think we're all bad people. And in fact, they're high-fiving us as we protest down the streets of our you know, Western cities, et cetera. But after a while, you know, we want more and we want to actually see change uh, and not just have some visibility and recognition. So maybe that's what we're working through. It's a really good point about why it felt so powerful, I guess, in the beginning. Yeah, I think especially for me, someone who was born here, like I was just vilified at a young age when I said I was Iranian. And to hear people understand that like a government doesn't represent the people, if that's yeah. even possible, that's nice. Because to be an Iranian person now doesn't mean to be, you know, a part of the Iranian government. Whereas back then people, you said you're Iranian, well, like you're this or that, you yeah. know, go back. It was like, it's like there was an animosity. Now people are come to understanding that just because you may come from a crappy regime that doesn't mean that you're a crappy person just because you come from that culture and that's nice because i think um people needed that they needed to stop kind of sensationalizing and vilifying iranian people people because they are just people like everyone else it's always good to see you thank you for doing this have fun on on sunday yeah thank you bye-bye bye it's kayvon zand in New York, the Persian Parade, the annual Persian Parade, takes place this Sunday. Those of you who get to go to that, if you're in the New York area, go on down. This is full time for Rook for today. Our website, rookmedia.com. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Super Parisa, Smart Pega, Talented Anahita, Sound Person Louise, Savvy Roham, Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you haven't done so already on any of our platforms or all of our platforms. Find us on Instagram at Rook Media. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. Mizunbashi. Bashi.